I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today on The Detail I've just arrived at a farm just outside of Rotorua to find out about breakthrough research that could save the lives of hundreds of Kiwi children but potentially millions of people around the world. And they have a condition called hydrocephalus which is when too much fluid develops on the brain and every year about a hundred children in New Zealand are diagnosed with it. So I'm here about the trials that are going on right now for this life-saving research and those trials are taking place on sheep. Today I'm meeting the scientists and later on I meet a couple who are involved in this project for very personal reasons. I'm climbing the stairs of a big shed at Ngapori Research Farm, which is owned by Auckland University. And I'm meeting Dr Sarah-Jane Guild, who's part of the team that's been working for 20 years on this world-first device. So far, this farm is no different to any other. But when I get inside, it's another story. Go to the surgery room. Sure, absolutely. For a start, there's a small surgery where the sheep are operated on. This is the surgery room, which means... Oh, right, what are we looking at here? So we've got anaesthetic machines and ventilators, and so everything here would be like it would be in a vet clinic or even in a human surgery, all the same kind of procedures are done. It's sterile, pain relief, anaesthesia, antibiotics, all of those sorts of things. All right, so let's walk through here. Can you show me how you actually do the going into the, in with the sheep now? So, come on, settle down. So we're holding the, um, the wand over the sheep's head and you can hear the beeping, we can see on the screen that it's recording some pressure. And we're taking that 10 seconds of data, bars fill up and we get the beep and it says 20. Now that's a bit higher because we've just stressed them out and Mm. they've moved around and she's probably straining a little bit. Um, But generally anything under 25 is a good normal intracranial pressure. And so if it was above 25 we'd be thinking that maybe something was going wrong. I would like to go back to the beginning with you and talk about how this all came about and why we're actually on a farm near Rotorua talking about a, um, a life-saving gadget almost mm. Mm. that's going to make, make a difference to potentially hundreds, thousands of Absolutely. Lives. Well, there's a hundred children get diagnosed with hydrocephalus in New Zealand a year. There's over a million people with hydro- living with hydrocephalus in, for example, the US. So there's millions of people worldwide that could potentially have their hydrocephalus better managed by being able to measure the pressure in their brain. Because at the moment, the only way to measure brain pressure is to drill a hole in someone's head and put a catheter in to measure that pressure. Right, which is drastic. Which is drastic. You obviously don't do that lightly, and that's only done in the hospital. But for these people that are living with hydrocephalus, they are under the constant worry that the shunt that is placed to drain their excess fluid from their brain, usually down into their abdomen, they block. So for the last 50 years, that treatment has pretty much been the same. This tube, life-saving, but... It's pretty rudimentary, drains the fluid from the skull through a valve down into the abdomen. Mm. 
Now that's, that's fine, that's great, that solves the immediate problem. But it's not a matter of if that shunt will fail, it's a matter of when. 50% of them will fail within the first two years. So these patients are sent home and they're told, if you get a headache, if you're nauseous, if anything changes, vomiting, lethargy, all of those things that could happen with a normal virus, or even just dehydration, yeah. could be a sign that that pressure is increasing in their brain again because that shunt is blocking. So they're constantly living with that worry. Because if, if the shunt blocks and, they, and it can't drain the fluid, then they die? They can. It could be life-threatening within 24 hours. So because you've got fluid accumulating inside the fixed volume of the skull, so pressure goes up, but what that means is the brain is being compressed and the perfusion of the brain, all that blood supply that's required for the brain to function, gets reduced. And so if you're not getting blood supply, that brain tissue is really at risk. Mm. So 70% of the time when people turn up to hospital with symptoms that they could be the shunt failing, it turns out they undergo observation, they have X-rays, MRI, CT, other things it turns out it's not actually the shunt, it's something else, and they get sent home again with nothing being done. That's one thing if you live 20 minutes from Starship Hospital and you've got neurosurgeons right there that can be consulted. It's quite another if you live in other parts of the country where you don't have access to those neurosurgical services. Oh, just describe the, what, where we're at at the moment. We're, we've got a table in front of us. Uh, in the shed and we're upstairs uh, there's just sheep over in the next pen and right here is a wool bale I don't know why that's there but I guess it's you know normal on any um... yep so our sheep were shorn um, they've had been part of our study for almost 12 months now so a couple of weeks ago they were shorn so so, so it's like in many ways it's like a, a, a your, your average farm but it's not it's extraordinary what is going on absolutely here. so yeah. all those things that need to be done to normal farm management, are also done here. Yeah, okay. But this table, tell me about this. So this is just a demonstration. It's a, it's a plastic skull. It's an anatomical model of a human head with a brain inside it. And so it just shows the idea. We've got the, the white tube, which is the silicon tube, which is placed for the shunt and draining the fluid. And mm -hmm. you can see there's really small holes in there. Maybe. Oh, there are two if you look really, really closely. So it's no wonder they block up because it's not just a fluid like water. There's proteins and membrane, other things that are in that cerebral spinal fluid. Yeah. And so what we're showing is that we've got the hole in the skull. Yeah. And then there's our sensor just placed next to it as well. I see. And so there's the glass sensor that just sits in the cortex. So that's just the, the general brain tissue. Mm. And that's exactly how it will be. Um, in our patients. So the thing that you have, you and your team have designed is this tiny little piece of glass. That's right. Well, so it's two millimetres by three and a half by 20 millimetres. So it's, we kind of say it's a few grains of rice or a little bit like um, half a matchstick. Yeah. And, that, and what's inside that? So this is, inside it is a circuit board with some electronic components. So that's what makes the pressure measurement. We have a copper coil to pick up the wireless power. And essentially, there's, there's, on that one face of the glass sensor is a very thin layer of glass, which has right next to another one. And so both those surfaces have metal coatings on them. So when the pressure on the outside of the glass changes, it deflects that thin membrane. 
and the capacitance, the electrical capacitance between those two layers changes. And that's what we can then measure, we can calibrate that as pressure. Right. And so the, the sensor measures that change of capacitance, it has a calibration all contained inside it, and then it reports the pressure back to the wand that we use to power it and to collect the data. Okay, the wand, it looks like a remote control with a, a sort of a circular halo thing around it. That's right, so it's a little bit like a table tennis bat, yeah. or um, we call it the Starship Enterprise, because you can imagine it flying, flying through the air. Yeah. Um, so this... When we turn it on, this will it make a noise. It, it will once we start to take a measurement. Mm -hmm. So it, it turns on, and then we hold a button down and hold it over the sensor so it's ready to go. It's setting up an electromagnetic field which sets up the current inside the sensor to power it, and then it's collecting 10 seconds of data. It beeps to tell us it's ready, and then it tells us that mean value and we want to collect the waveform. This says it's a mean value of five, but the pressure inside your brain actually fluctuates with your heartbeat, with your respiration and things like that. And that additional information about what that waveform looks like is useful to the neurosurgeons. The idea is to do regular measurements. That's right. So Once the idea is that these people, patients will be able to take the system home with them and make a measurement every day at home in their in their home while they're well and then as symptoms develop we can keep taking measurements. So we spoke with a family who has a child with hydrocephalus and they said for their child they watch them and it's like their battery runs down over a few days and they start looking at them going mm, I wonder what's going on and then they vomit and it's like right we're off to the hospital we better go. So we were talking to them about what it would mean to them to be able to measure pressure and whether they would do it every day to be able to do that. We were worried that people might think, oh, I'm feeling well, I don't need to measure that pressure. But they said it would be critical. They would make it part of their routine. So they would, bedtime would become, we'll get into our pyjamas, we'll clean our teeth, we'll read a story and we'll take our brain pressure measurement. And then they know that that child is doing well and that they can rest easy and sleep. Now I'm with Catherine Burnett and Jeremy Muir, who are involved with the project, even though it comes too late for their little boy, Will. Will was born in 2008, and he was a, seemed a healthy, bouncing baby. But around about 11, 12 weeks, um, we started to notice an increase in his head size. We have large heads in the family, so we thought it was possibly normal, but it kept on going. And um, a few days after a a clean bill of health um, with a nurse, um, I was I went to the doctor to sort of check him out and she suggested we go to Starship. And um, that night um, they scanned him and found a, a lesion or a, a mass on the scan. And previously that afternoon he'd been pretty much identified as having hydrocephalus. And we discovered that um, it was being caused by the presence of the lesion, which was blocking the plumbing in his um, brain. Will had surgery to remove the lesion and went home with a shunt inserted into his brain to drain the fluid. After that, we were in and out of hospital. It was a little bit of a revolving door over the next year. Probably three, maybe four um, shunt revisions had to be done. And each time it was the same story, we would go in 
wait in um, emergency department to be transferred to a ward once we'd been seen by a doctor who would ascertain that we needed to go up to the neurological ward and then um, the people at more registrar consultant level would wait for the situation to declare itself because you know there's a set of symptoms a child who is um, or any person who is experiencing the shunt failure um, has which are vomiting um, sometimes the eyes there's a thing called sun setting where you yeah, see where the, the whites, whites of the eyes become more visible yeah and my understanding is that the only real way of knowing that it's a build-up of fluid or that the shunt's not working is to drill into the yeah. head. Yeah. They don't operate without having a, a fairly good idea themselves. They don't necessarily go entirely on the parent's word. We had, a, I think, a pretty much a 100% strike rate on the shunt failures that we had. In addition to that, in 2009, we had a period of chemotherapy, mm -hmm. which um, he had because there was a subsequent lesion removal. So added into that mix of chemo, uh, shunt revisions, surgery, it was quite the year. Will passed away? 2014. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he's, he was five and a half. He'd started school and he had plenty of words and little phrases. He was somewhat damaged um, neurologically by that first period of surgery and um, probably the brain compression but a very sort of happy child to be around, like a little you know, array of sunshine. I was saying yesterday um, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but I wouldn't change it for us because it was a, a very positive experience to have him in our lives, mm. yeah, and, and we learned a lot from him. And was it a shunt failure that led to his, his death or it was the tumour? Really, when you go into the hospital, you're, you're not saying, my child's sick. You're saying, I think the shunt's going. Mm -hmm. And all of that time, you're worried about um, the, the pressure and what damage might be mm -hmm. being caused. And literally at that time, our dream was, wouldn't it be great if there was a device that you could just hold over the child's head at home and say, ah, the shunt's not working. But uh, certainly at that time I had no idea technically how that could be done. So you, you were actually thinking that? Yeah, literally, is... literally as, a, as a lawyer who works with a lot of startups and had always thought one day it'd be nice to have my own startup if only I had the scientific nous yeah. to do it. Yeah. My idea at the time was, wouldn't it be great if there was a device that could measure whether a shunt was working without actually having to operate and take it out? Mm. And that is literally what this device is. It's, so it was a wonderful opportunity to um, hear about the science behind it, uh, understand how, how clever it is to use the sort of the wireless technology, the, the micro implant, and that it works by way of measuring the overall pressure within the brain so you can actually track and create a baseline and a record at home as a parent so that when something happens, uh, the hospital or your specialist consultant already really has been tracking as you've been playing along at home, if you like. The couple got involved through their association with the fundraising firm Icehouse Ventures. I had heard about it through a couple of different um, sources in the um, startup community. Certainly through Icehouse, we had the opportunity to go and, and visit and talk to them. And I, 
I had been in and sort of given them our story just to help them along in terms of understanding what the parents' experience was. And I know that I've talked to other, other people in that situation as well. And that, to me, is good science because they're working to actually solve a real-world problem. What is your involvement with it now? So we've, we've made a small investment through the Ice House. There are a lot of larger funds and serious resources, including government grants and things, which are helping them build out their product. Medical devices are, are very hard to get across the line. There's a lot at stake. So it's, there's a long way to go, I think. But we're looking forward to the, the start of human trials at the at the Auckland Hospital and Starship and that will really hopefully demonstrate that this is uh, something which is going to work, not just in happy sheep. Potentially it could save like a lot of lives, couldn't it? Mm. And make people's lives a lot easier. In our case we had two girls we had to manage during that year that was the worst one for us who, as well who were seven and five at the time. Yeah, and um, no, this would it would have been an absolute boon for us. Yeah, I remember, I've still got the tape measure. Um, I used to in that in those first few months when we were home, being a little bit paranoid about head size after that experience, and and measuring Will's head quite a lot. Um, and you wouldn't need to be doing that. You'd have your baseline measure and and go from there. So the important thing is that it's safe. Uh, the technology seems to work really well in the in the abstract or out in the open air or in, or in a sheep. Mm. Um, it just needs to both work well inside a human and be safe, and that's the next step. Shh, 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 shh. Oh, look, 17. That's good. So Sarah-Jane, just by um, giving it a bit of a scratch on the back and uh, calming it, the number came down. Absolutely, so she relaxed a little bit, she hears the beeping of the wand, she knows what that means. What do those tests show? Anything of interest? They're gloriously boring. The sheep have all been happy and healthy, nothing unexpected has been happening and that's exactly what we want. Would you have achieved what you've done without the sheep? No, no, absolutely not. It would have to be some kind of animal testing. It'd have to be some sort of animal testing to be able to get to that next step. No one's going to let us take something to clinic and use it in a human, in a child, before we have shown that it's safe to do that. And this is the only way we could do that. If we could do it another way, we would. Sarah Jane says that once the sheep reach the end of the trial, they are euthanised and post-mortems are done to check their brains and bodies are healthy, information that's essential before the next step of human trials. All this is overseen by Dr Jody Selinski, the uni's vet and animal welfare officer. We, we take great, great, great pains to ensure in those ethics applications that that these animals are well cared for their whole lives. That we respect them and that we, we treat them as, as well as they uh, can possibly be treated. And for these 
girls, like Sarah Jane said, they had a surgery that was sterile, the same as in a veterinary mm. clinic or a human hospital. They had anesthesia and pain relief and were, were cared for very intensely for a few days. And then they just bounce right back up and they decide to go on their merry way. And for the most part of their lives, they live very happily out on pasture and come in every once in a while to have the scans done. Because it's obviously hugely important to the university that people know that the animals are being well cared for in this research, even though this research is going to save many, many lives. It's still important, isn't it? Yeah. The university has, is, is incredible. So even though there are human ethics committees, of course, we have to take extra care and there's significant legislation around. People don't know that, that there's legislation that, you know, we're under such strict rules and regulations and protocols and I couldn't ask for a better university and a better team that I work with and a better animal ethics committee and the best researchers like Sarah Jane who care deeply for these animals um, and, and we just can't wait until these things happen where they can actually be used to save lives mm. all over the world. So the next step in this is, is human trials, mm -hmm. and tell me about that. So we've just got ethical permission to, from the Health and Disabilities Ethics Committee to do our first human patients at Auckland City Hospital with the neurosurgeon that we've been working with all the way through. That will be 10 adults and 10 children. We start with the adults because they can give consent. So these people will be recruited from those people who are presenting to have shunt surgery. So they are having, either having a shunt placed for the first time or they are coming back for revision because their shunt is blocked. And in the same time as they're having surgery, we'll place the sensor right next to the shunt. They'll monitor their brain pressure over the next three to six months and onwards. After the trials, then it's commercialised. That's right. So we've been able to, through that MBIE grant, um, we've been able to start a spin-out company called Katea Health. And so the company is tasked with, one, bringing that prototype to the point where we are now ready to do the first in human trials, but also to take it through regulatory approval and to get it out into clinical use. We, want to, we have always said we want to do this in New Zealand first. We've had a lot of support from the government, from charitable organisations, Neurological Foundation, Cure Kids, Health Research Council. All of those people have put money into this team to get this to this point. How and much, roughly? So it's about $14 million of grant funding, and then the company raised $6 million, so 20 um, million. last year. So about $20 million so far. And so we want to make sure that is available to... New Zealand patients with hydrocephalus first. But commercially, we're targeting the US. So we want FDA approval um, and to be able to do another trial in the US soon. Um, how does it make you feel <laughs> after it's, all this? It's really exciting to be so close to actually being able to place this in a person who has hydrocephalus and measure their brain pressure is incredibly exciting. That's it for today. The detail is supported by RNZ and NZ On Air. This episode was engineered by Mark Chesterman and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to Sarah Jane Guild, Catherine Burnett and Jeremy Muir and Jodie Selinsky. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Kakite. Kite.